and uh, if you would please turn your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Well, I have to confess, uh, approaching this passage uh, was daunting. This is known as the Lord's Prayer. And um, I really believe this is one of the most important lessons from God's Word for you today as a Christian, to teach you how to pray. I mean, I can't think of a more important lesson for the Christian living in this world, surrounded by difficulties, trials, suffering, for your sanctification and growth, for your endurance, for your faith, to know how to pray. It is such an important lesson. And this is what the Lord Jesus teaches us in this passage. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And he's the one who helps us to know how to talk to him. In the parallel account, we actually had the verse up on the screen, Luke 11. The disciples approach Jesus and ask him to teach them something. Now, the disciples don't ask Jesus to teach them how to perform awesome miracles. The disciples don't ask Jesus to teach them how to walk on water, how to cast out demons, how to raise the dead. They don't even ask Jesus how to teach them to teach them how to preach a good sermon. They ask Jesus one thing. What do they ask in Luke 11? Teach us how to pray. That's what we want to know. There was something about when Jesus prayed that they saw God the Son talking in a way with His Father that they had never seen before. And they were drawn by that. Teach us how to pray. This is an important lesson. Last week we looked at verses 5 to 8 and we really looked at the heart of prayer. The heart of prayer is that we're sincerely speaking to our Father So we want to approach honestly, not like the hypocrites who are fake, not like the Gentiles, who, the pagans who just kind of throw words at heaven, but we want to bring our heart to God sincerely. And and now Jesus teaches us how to pray. This is a model, a guide for our prayer life. Uh, You would be contradicting Jesus' previous point if you just prayed through this rotely. Does that make sense? So if you kind of mindlessly just throw up the Lord's Prayer and not think about the words, you're actually doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus wants you to do. This prayer is not meant to be recited uh, repetitiously or rotely. It's meant to give you a guide, a model for how you are to approach God. It, It really takes your heart to the real priorities of life. It helps your heart to see the big picture. This prayer will change you as much as it will change anything else. Really, it functions like a compass that keeps your heart pointing true north towards the Lord. His glory first, and then your requests. So I want you to ask yourself as we go through, we're just going to go through the first part of it, 
this Sunday, and we'll see the second part in a couple of weeks, or sorry, next Sunday. I want you to ask yourself, do I pray like this? Do my prayers sound familiar to the Lord's Prayer? Is there a resemblance? Do I need to change the order or the priorities of my prayer requests? Maybe you need to focus a little less on yourself in your prayers. Maybe you need to reorder, like I said, your prayer requests. Maybe you need to see the bigger picture in prayer, as the Lord will show us, and not get so caught up in the weeds of your life. Maybe you need to simplify your prayers. You need to be a little more honest. I want you to look and decide how your prayers can look and be more like the Lord's. You'll notice this prayer is not long. It's not complicated. It is a simple guide and a model for us. And again, one of the most important lessons for the Christian life is to know how to pray. So why don't we, before we read the text, I do want to pray and ask the Lord to help us in this. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we do so with humility. We recognize you are holy. You are high and lifted up, set apart from us. We are unlike you. And your word is given to us, inspired by you, breathed out by you. It is the Holy Scriptures, your holy word, that is brought to bear on our lives, our hearts. And so, God, I just ask on our behalf that we would be changed by your word, that we would not just be hearers, but be doers. And that first and foremost, we would see in our prayers that you are first, that your glory is first, your holiness is first, your character is first, your kingdom is first, your will is first. Align our hearts with yours, O oh God. Help us to pray rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. I count six requests in this prayer, and the first three have nothing to do with you. They focus on the glory of God, which might give you a hint as to where your prayers should start. And we're just going to focus on the first three this morning, and then we're going to see the last three, they focus on the needs of men. And so this morning, it's really one major point. It's point one, keep your father first. Keep your father first. Jesus says, pray then like this. Here's your model. Our father in heaven. How do you start your prayers? What are the requests that you rush to? What are the first petitions that come out of your mouth? Who is the first subject? If you're like me, we often rush to make requests for ourselves. Help me. 
Comfort me. Well, give me wisdom. Give me health. Protect me. Forgive me. And the list goes on and on. But notice who Jesus puts first in his prayer. Our Father. Calvin writes this, Assign the first place in prayer to the glory of God. For it would be altogether preposterous to mind only what belongs to ourselves. Don't make yourself the priority or the center of your prayers. Keep God first. Keep your Father first. And this address, the opening prologue here, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, that tells you how you ought to approach God. That determines your demeanor as you approach God in prayer. There's not a petition yet. There's not a request yet. This is the opening. And it tells you how to approach God. You approach God in two ways. First, with confidence. With confidence. He uses the title Father to remind us of our relationship with God. He, the Father, has set His unconditional love upon us. The Father has adopted us into His family. We have access to His presence. We can call Him Father, Abba. As we said last week, we saw that our Father is benevolent. He is good. He is gracious and merciful toward His children. When we approach Him, we don't need to hide or cower in fear of being punished or abused. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we can approach with confidence because of the faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, the mediator that we know that stands between God and man. Jesus said in John 8, if you know me, you know my Father. said the same thing, in essence, in John 14. So the confidence that we approach God with is not in ourselves. We're not like the Pharisee who bursts into the temple, goes to the front and says, oh God, I thank you that I am not like that tax collector. It's not self-confidence. Our confidence is in another. Our confidence is in who? Jesus Christ, the high priest. We walk into the throne room of heaven holding his hand. And because of him, we have access to the Father. He, Jesus, made a way for us to know God and to address him as Father. So we first approach with confidence because he is our Father. But secondly, we approach with reverence. Because of where he sits. Our Father in heaven. The reality of where our Father lives reminds us of his majesty. The Father doesn't sit on top of a molehill. He doesn't sit above the earth, but from the earth at its highest peak. He rules, he sits in a position that cannot be contended for. And it cannot be taken from him. Psalm 2.4 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And who is he laughing at? He's laughing at the rulers of this world who stand opposed to him. Because he rules over it all. 
from over the heavens. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. Therefore, he does all that he pleases. He rules over all. He is king of heaven and over the earth. We need to remember that God is not our neighbor. He's not our co-worker. You don't address him as you would address a co-equal or a peer. He's the king. Your approach to his throne room ought to be reverent. Now, before going into a courtroom, I don't know if you've ever been into an actual courtroom, an officer will greet you before you walk in. He'll greet you in the hall, and he'll give you some clear instructions. He'll say something like this. You won't come to the stand unless you're called. You will not speak unless directly addressed by the judge. You will address the judge as your honor. You'll not disrupt any other aspect of the hearing, or we will escort you out. You will be asked to leave and escorted off the premises. So people walk into a courtroom, an earthly courtroom, with reverence, don't they? They're sobered up. They take it seriously. How much more should we as believers who approach the throne room of God to speak with him? Let 1 Chronicles 29.11 set the tone for your prayers. This is a prayer given by King David, the highest ruler on earth, arguably at the time, ruler over Israel. He said this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours, Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Who is the emphasis of that prayer? You, Father God. Keep your Father first, high and exalted, above all. Come to Him with both confidence and reverence. Now, Jesus gives three requests that keep, in our minds, our Father on the throne. He sits on the throne. We don't put him there or not, but does he sit on the throne of your heart? Do you see him as the King of heaven and earth? These three requests, these three priorities, ought to be at the top of our prayer list, at the top of our prayer requests. Number one. His name, his name, that his name would be hallowed. Look at verse 9, B, the second part. Hallowed be your name. Now remember, Jesus isn't just giving us words that we mindlessly throw up. Sometimes we use Christianese and we don't know what it means. Hallowed is like a Christianese word, right? That, Have you really thought about what hallowed means? What does it mean to hallow? Well, to hallow is to treat something or someone as holy. It's the same root word of holy. So to approach with reverence, to treat something as holy. Isaiah 8.13 sums it up. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear 
and let him be your dread. So to hollow his name is to treat his name as holy with reverence. Now, what is his name? What is his name? Well, he tells us his name in Exodus 3, I heard it, 14 to 15. God says this to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. And you'll notice in your Bible, Lord is capitalized. You see that often in the Old Testament. That means that the word Yahweh is used there. Yahweh, the name of God. So Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Yahweh. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Yahweh is his name forever. When you look at Isaiah chapter 6, in fact, turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah is uh, in your Old Testament. It's a big, major prophet. If you turn right after Psalms and you hit the prophets, Isaiah is a big one. You should come across it. Isaiah chapter 6. I want us to look at this account as we think about Revering God's name as holy. In this account, Isaiah writes this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, Lord is not capitalized there. Just notice that. But he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, this kind of angel, angelic being. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, capitalized, of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. Just an outstanding, majestic scene from Scripture. We get a little window into it. But if you imagine being there, it, it'll shake you. You've heard this statement before, but the only attribute of God that is declared with emphasis three times is holy. We could say that it is the summation of all his other attributes. He is holy. Now there's two significant aspects of his holiness that you ought to know. First and primarily, holiness means that he is other than. He is set apart. We cannot relate to him in this way. I mean, think about even the pure and morally good seraphim are covering their face and declaring God as holy, holy, holy. He is unlike us. So that's the primary aspect of his holiness. He's set apart. He's other than everything else. He's high above everything and everyone. The second aspect of his holiness relates to his moral perfection. 
And this is something that we can relate to. When we have been cleansed, forgiven, and we're being saved and sanctified, right, by the work of the Holy Spirit, God, in our lives, that's what it means, sanctification, growing in holiness, becoming holy. One day, Christian, you will stand before God glorified and perfect without sin. Just something we look forward to, without spot or stain. We will be in this aspect holy. But know this. When we're glorified, when you're morally perfect, and you stand in the presence of God, you will still declare with the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. He is unlike us. He is high and set apart. That's what it means to be holy. Also, you notice in verse 3, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. The names used. The Lord. Yahweh is holy, holy, holy. That is revering his name. Hallowing his name. That's what the seraphim were doing. By the way, how did Isaiah respond to this sight? Did Isaiah sing and dance? No. The foundations of the threshold, look at verse 4, they shook at the voice of him who called. Who called? Did God speak yet? No, it was the seraphim saying, holy, 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 that shook the temple or the foundations here. The house was filled with smoke and Isaiah says, woe is me. I am damned. I am lost. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. By the way, Isaiah was a prophet. He had the cleanest lips on earth. He spoke for God, yet he recognizes his utter sinfulness, his depravity, and the sinfulness and the depravity of everyone around him. Why does he feel this way? For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. This is what it looks like to hollow his name, to approach with reverence, to desire that he be set above and far beyond us. That's, that's the petition here. That's the first request that Jesus gives. Our Father, who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name. May your name be lifted up, set apart, and far above us. May we revere you as holy. May we rightly see you high and far above us and beyond us. R.C. Sproul in his teaching series on holiness, it's just like a standard. You should go watch it, listen to it, read it, however you want to digest it. It's outstanding. He asked this interesting question. He's talking about the holiness of God. He said, if you could write your own law, if you could make your own constitution for the nation, what would be your top ten laws? What are the top ten? Maybe top ten amendments that you would make to our current constitution. Maybe you would rush to make sure that all men are created equal and treated equally, treated fairly. You might 
rush to make sure that freedom of religion is a priority. You might rush to make sure that, you know, we still have the right to bear arms or that we still have freedom of the press. How many of us would rush to make sure that reverence for God is maintained? That everyone would hollow his name? That any form of blasphemy, irreverence, taking the Lord's name in vain would be abolished and criminal? What's the first thing Jesus says you should ask for in your prayers? What is his top priority? The issue of first importance is that his name would be revered as holy. Do you revere him as holy in your own heart? Is he high and set apart other than you? And does the reality of his holiness drop you to your knees and say, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. Is that how you approach God in prayer? Know this. The holiness of God is not determined by your attitude or reverence in prayer. He is holy. The seraphim declared it, whether you are regard him as holy or not. But do you regard him in your heart as set apart and holy? His name, Yahweh. That's the first request. The second request is his kingdom. That his kingdom would come. His kingdom. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come. Now, what is the kingdom of God? We've talked a little bit about this in the book of Matthew. It is a major theme. And I want you to know there's two aspects of the kingdom that we should understand. Now, this is a little bit of a, an eschatology lesson. So I want you to bear with me. I'm going to talk about future events here and categories of theology. Okay. But it's really important for us to understand when we ask God, the Father, that his kingdom would come, what are we asking for? There's two aspects of God's kingdom. There's the, the universal kingdom, and then there's the mediatorial kingdom. The universal kingdom and the mediatorial kingdom. The universal kingdom is God's eternal reign over all creation, heaven and earth. It's what David's talking about in 1 Chronicles 29. O oh Lord, Yours is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. That's his universal reign over all. God's in control of everything. He's the sovereign ruler over all. That's the universal aspect of his kingdom. The mediatorial kingdom is God's reign on the earth specifically through a man who acts as a representative. It's what was made in the garden at the very beginning. God made man, how? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him, both male and female. What was the creation mandate? That they would be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and do what? Rule. Subdue. Exercise dominion, not to usurp God, but on God's behalf. They were mediator rulers. They were made to be that way. Of course, we know, we read that Genesis 3 and that perfect kingdom was lost because of Adam's sin. He sinned, and there was a curse that followed. The mediatorial kingdom was taken from Adam. He lost it. 
And the earth and all its inhabitants were cursed. But there was a significant promise in that curse. Do you remember it? Genesis 3.15, the child born of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. There's a clue pointing forward. We get more clues along the way in the Old Testament that the offspring born of Abraham would bless Israel and all the nations. Genesis 12. The offspring from the house of David, Israel's preeminent historical ruler, there would be offspring that would have a forever reign after David. And we believe that the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, who came first to save sinners through sacrifice, will come again to establish what? A kingdom. And this kingdom would restore what was broken. It would restore the earth and destroy the curse. Once again, God will rule on earth through a man. A perfect man. The God-man. Jesus Christ. So we look forward to this kingdom. It has not come yet because Christ has not come yet. We believe that, according to Revelation 19, we will, he will reign for a thousand years. And then something incredible happens after that. Do you know what happens after that? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. This is important to know and understand the order of events to come. When we say, your kingdom come, what are we praying for? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 25. In this uh, chapter, Paul, the apostle, is talking about the resurrection. He's talking about how important Jesus is resurrection because it establishes and, and builds that foundation for our future resurrection so that we wouldn't die and stay dead, but that we would raise to new life in Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. He says, for as by a man came death, that's Adam, he sinned, came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Who's that man? The last Adam, Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each, look at verse 23, in his own order. There's an order here of resurrections. Christ, the firstfruits. He was the first resurrection. What comes next? Then at his coming, the second coming, those who belong to Christ. There's a second resurrection. Then, verse 24, here's the third one, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Interesting. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. So there's a resurrection coming Christ has raised. And because of that, we can be sure that there's a resurrection coming when he comes and establishes is his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And during that time, he's restoring creation, he's defeating all the enemies, all the rulers and authorities and powers on earth. And the last enemy is what? Death. And so there's a third resurrection when the end comes. And imagine this picture, Jesus Christ reign, reigning, 
ruling over this kingdom. And in a gesture of love, gratitude, and thankfulness, he hands the keys of the kingdom back to who? His father. Now think about the implications of that. This is where we believe the universal kingdom of God and the mediatorial kingdom of Christ come together and they meet. When God the Father and Christ reign over all for eternity, this is the new heavens and the new earth. This is the eternal state. This is the end of the book. You read Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters. It's talking about this. There's a new garden. There's a new and wonderful place. The God's dwelling place is with man. And we live eternally with him, enjoying him, ruling and reigning over the earth and doing what we were made to do forever. So this is the big picture. This is the end of history. This is where it's all going. This is what the Son wants to happen. And this is what God's children want. Your kingdom come. How does this help us in our prayers? How does this orient our heart? Well, it helps us to really, you know, zoom out and see the big picture. It's not about us. It's not about the little things we stumble through, you know, the little speed bumps of our life. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the weeds that we're not seeing the forest and we're not seeing God's big plan for the end. And that's that his kingdom would come. It's about his kingdom, not ours. Jesus puts this here to give us perspective. Pray your eschatology. Pray with your eyes forward. Pray with the end in view. And if you pray with the end in view, then maybe you'll live like the end is in view. This is what it's all about. Christ is the king. We're his ambassadors left on earth to make disciples, to gather kingdom citizens until he comes back. This sets our priorities straight. He's given us a message, the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So guess what has to happen before the kingdom comes? We need to evangelize and make disciples. One practical way, Christian, for you to pray for his kingdom to come, is to pray for the lost. Pray that the lost would be saved. It's a practical way for the kingdom to come. Because we know the end doesn't come until the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole world. So pray for the lost. Pray for every lost sheep that they would be found. Pray this way. Father, I pray that the gospel of the kingdom would advance in Fontana, that the gospel of the kingdom would advance in Rancho Cucamonga, in San Bernardino County, in Rialto. Use us to advance your kingdom. Keep your kingdom at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. Jesus will say later, and we're going to look at this text, Matthew 6.33, seek first what? The kingdom. I think we often get so distracted by our own kingdoms our own little worlds and spheres. No, no, be concerned primarily about God's kingdom. 
the bigger picture. Yearn for it. Long for it. Strive for it. Seek for it. As we sing, come, Lord Jesus. We want you to come back. We want that to be the priority of our hearts. Pray for his kingdom to come. So his name is kingdom. Thirdly, the final request here is his will. His will. Not your will. His wants, his desires, not your wants, your desires yet. That's coming. But what he wants first. His will first. He says in verse 10b, look at that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why does he add that little phrase there, on earth as it is in heaven? Does that mean God's will is not being accomplished on earth? No. He's talking about human hearts and the human response. See, in heaven, God's creation, the angelic beings, obey, they submit their will to the fathers perfectly. You have angels moving at the whim of God, doing exactly what he wants to do. But how do we do that here on the earth? How are we doing? Not so well, are we? Our human hearts reject the will of God. There are a lot of human beings that still are stubbornly refusing to submit their will to God's will. And so what Jesus is telling or asking the Father is that really our hearts, human, humanity's hearts, would come under submission to the will of God in the way that the heavens have. God's will is always accomplished. Nothing happens outside of his will. Psalm 135 says this, I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. The anglerfish does exactly what God wants it to. Every tuna in the... What are they, swarms? What are they called? Packs? Schools. I knew it was something with a, an S. Every tuna in the school moves exactly as God wants it to. The migration patterns of animals go exactly as God wants it to. Every problem in your life is functioning under the sovereign care and direction of God. Even sometimes the problems that you have caused, that your sin has caused, God is working together for good if you're his child, if you love him, and it still functions according to his eternally decreed plan. Nothing, no molecule moves outside of his design or his order. So it's not that God's will depends on our prayers in order to happen. It's that prayer aligns our will with his. I saw a sign on the freeway the other day. Maybe you've seen this sign. Prayer changes things. And it does. God uses and works prayer through prayer. But I found that prayer changes me more than anything else. It tunes my heart to thee focuses my wants and desires on what really matters, God's will becomes more important than mine. 
you know, when you walk up to the counter at McDonald's, you ask the person behind the register to give you what you want. Imagine walking up to the register and asking the person behind it, what do you want for me to have? Isn't that kind of strange? That's what we do in prayer, though. God, what do you want from me? I want what you want. Align my will, my desire with yours. What's the will of God for my life? Is it that I would be married or not? Is it that I would be successful or not? Is it that I'll get that job promotion or not? Is it that I would have this many children or not? What is God's will? Should I take the job? Should I not? That's a question we always ask ourselves. And we're usually thinking about, you know, the details and circumstances of life. What is God's will for you? Well, he states it explicitly in Scripture. Here's the will of God for you. Uh, Several items that I have listed on the PowerPoint. His first will for your life is that you'd be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. His second thing that God wills for your life is that you would not be conformed to this world, but that you'd be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which comes through his word. Romans 12.2 says that. Thirdly, God's will for your life is that you'd be sanctified, that you would become more holy. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Peter 2.15, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live an authentic life of integrity and sincerity before others, that you might win them to Christ. 1 Timothy 2.4, here's what God wants. He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You ought to pray to that end. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is patient. He doesn't want, he doesn't will that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Pray to that end. Family members, neighbors, co-workers that have not yet repented, pray that they would. God wants that. Micah 6.8, What does the Lord want of you? What's his will for you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Start there. Those are some great passages and principles. Uh, The will of God for you. Pray for those things. Pray for his will to be done, not your own. Does that help your perspective? Do you see how our first priority in prayer is not about us. It's not putting us first and, or putting us at the center of it, but really putting our Father first. His name first. His kingdom first. His will first. Start there in your prayers. Start with Him. And if you seek His kingdom, if you pray for His kingdom, all the other things will come into place. All the things, other things will file in order. Focus on your Father first. Think about how your prayers can be altered and changed to put your Father first. Well, as we get ready for a time of communion, I want to take you through an example of a man 
at the moment of greatest crisis, putting the will of his father before his own. And we are going to look at that passage as we prepare for the Lord's table, communion. And so just as, you know, we get ready for that, we're going to pass the elements out. The ushers will pass the elements during the song that we sing together and, and just give you a time to prepare your hearts for communion. Communion is an ordinance of the church. It's for God's people. We're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. If you don't know Christ, it, it doesn't make sense to partake in this ritual. It's not a ritual. It's a means of remembrance. So we use the symbol of the bread and the cup to remember that. So it's for God's people. It's for true children of God, disciples of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a believer, you can partake. I want to encourage you, though, also, if there's unconfessed sin in your life, confess it to God. If there's unresolved conflict between you and a brother or you and a sister, make sure that that relationship's right before you come to the altar and worship. Jesus says it's better for you to leave that gift there and go make that relationship right. Communion is something that we take together as a church. It's something that we as a church family are unified in. So it's a great privilege that we do this together. Parents, I encourage you to exercise wisdom and discernment with your children. This isn't an afternoon snack. But just make sure that they understand what they're participating in if they do partake with us. So what we'll do is I'll, I'll pray, and then the, the musicians will come up and play a song, and then I'll come back up. And I, again, I want us to look at Jesus Christ surrendering his will to his Father and how that relates to communion. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy. You are high and far and above us, set apart. Help us to remember that when we come to you in prayer. It is amazing to think that with man there was no solution for that great chasm. No solution to close the gap between God and man if it was up to us. But you took the initiative and sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the great mediator between God and man. To make that relationship right, to make it so that we, an unholy and sinful people, can approach your throne with confidence because of Jesus, his blood, his body given up, his sacrifice that cleansed us, washed us, and forgiven, has forgiven us so that we can even talk to you. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Help our prayers to be focused primarily on you to put you first. Prepare our hearts now as we get ready for communion. In Jesus' name, amen.